This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. This is like my favorite thing to do. This is my calling. This I feel like I love I love doing podcasting and and uh, being able to to reach large amounts of people in an independent way without having someone controlling that medium. Um, and to those of my listeners who are listening, what is up, everyone? Uh, I am Charlie Schrem. I'm your host of Untold Stories, where together we get to dive deep with some of cryptos and Bitcoin's most influential leaders, brightest crayons in the box, sharpest tools in the shed, to really understand how this movement came to be, uh, who these people are, what inspires them, what gets them awake and up every day, and how you know some of these people have made their net worth. We want to understand uh, to really understand uh, where we are right now. It's we're going into 2022. Uh, everyone, I feel like we're in this period of disillusionment where everyone is a little bit nervous or uh, what the next six months are going to look like. And then more importantly, how we can take everything that we learn from all the people that we learn it with to understand where we're going in the future, make the best uh, investment decisions, uh, be able to take our family out of uh, you know one place and bring them into the next. And uh, to talk about that today, Robert Breedlove, you have an amazing background. Thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Thanks, Charlie. Glad to be here. I uh, I read something this morning, actually, that said 11.7% of new homeowners have used Bitcoin to help them with their down payment, have sold, sold or borrowed against their Bitcoin for a down payment on a home. And really, like this is kind of why I personally got into Bitcoin, because I feel like... Uh, being able to to create, you know, there's that old verse. It's like, you know, teach, give a man a fish. He eats for a day. You teach a man how to fish. He eats for a lifetime. I feel like it kind of all gets back to that. Yeah. Um, Bitcoin's definitely an inexhaustible teacher, it seems like, <laughs> uh, on either side of the trade. like It's either going to humble you if you try to pull some kind of advanced, sophisticated, leveraged, long strategy or option yeah. strategy. You're probably going to underperform Bitcoin. If you're one of the 99.9%, um, or it could also just teach you about money, right? Just asking, trying to figure out what Bitcoin is, you end up in this rabbit hole that everyone describes. Um, so it's interesting, but I, I'm, I don't like to hear about people using Bitcoin to make down payments on their house, though, because that means they sold Bitcoin. I don't think or that's borrowed smart. against. Borrowed against. I hope. Oh, borrowed against. People, that's that's yeah. okay, I suppose. In a in a decentralized way, in most of the time, you know, understanding the trade-offs is always something very important. Uh, talking about decentralization and talking about, you know, you talk about the hardest money possible we have on one end, and then we have uh, so many other projects and coins and tokens and blockchains that really claim to be one thing, but they're not. Um, and a lot of people get wrecked. You saw just the past few weeks, like all these crazy things that happen. But I want to take it a step back. You're a Bitcoin-focused entrepreneur, writer, and philosopher. You were raised in Tennessee, uh, attending Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist churches. You spent most of your life spiritual yet agnostic through explorations down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, like myself and Roger Veer and all these other crazy people. You found, you yourself, you found yourselves becoming reacquainted with Christianity at the age of 33, and you were inspired by Bitcoin, Austrian economics, and a lot of different teachings. And, you know, I've kind of lost my way in religion. Uh, I'm kind of wandering around. 
trying to figure out where it all kind of fits in. But how did you uh, reckon? How did Bitcoin and Austrian economics kind of bring you back to to religion? Yeah, it's so I, I grew up going to church often in Tennessee, as you might imagine. Uh, that state is kind of the buckle of the Bible Belt, so we take it pretty seriously down there. That and football. But I, I don't know. As soon as I could really get into some heavy reading, kind of in my early teenage years, I started reading a lot about astrophysics. A lot of very heavy, heavy science intake. And so I became pretty atheistic in my mindset. And I carried that until early adulthood. And when I when I got into yoga and which got me into meditation, I kind of get got back on the spiritual path. But that's, you know, there's it's because kind of there's no doctrine to that, right? You're just meditating, you're doing, yeah. yoga, like you're, you know, saying a few words or setting intentions, but there's no, there's no mythology that, I mean, there, there might be, but the yoga I was doing was just kind of a personal experience. I wasn't um, taking it into the religious domain. So anyways, fast forward into Bitcoin. Um, I'm still kind of on that spiritual trajectory in life, but through Bitcoin, actually, I discovered the work of Jordan Peterson. So I would say if you're, if you're feeling lost on the religious front, just check out his, he's got a 12 part lecture series he did years ago called the psychological significance of the Bible. You can listen to it on his podcast or on YouTube. And it's, it's effing amazing. Frankly, he goes through very slowly. The uh, first book, first few lines of the Bible actually. And then he's describing its significance through a lot of different lenses through kind of like a clinical psychological lens. He looks at other um, wisdom traditions and religions and philosophies like Taoism. You know, in the East, there's no difference between religion and philosophy, actually. So that was another kind of bridge for me that when I was in my spiritual phase, I was reading a lot of Eastern philosophy, like Sun Tzu, The Art of War, uh, Musashi, Book of Five Rings. And Peterson does a great job of tying in all of the the core themes and lessons of that way of thinking, tying it back into Christianity. So it's, it's profound. And then I would say the Austrian economics piece is when you read a book like human action, I don't know if you've read that one by by Mises. It's incredible, man. I mean, you know, this, this idea of the, the primary element of existence being human praxis or human action, right? This, how we allocate our purpose into the world. There's a very distinct moral dimension to this, an ethical dimension that you can't capture an imperial or I'm sorry, empirical materialist science. You know, and this is, this is key, key to differentiating and understanding the economic principles that surround Bitcoin, uh, as distinct from Keynesian economics, Keynesian economics treats human beings like particles, right? Like, yes, we're all homo economicus. You put me yes, in this situation, I'm going to buy this math. and do that. But it's not true. It discounts human sovereignty. Whereas Austrian economics is, you know, much more realistic. It's it's based on axioms like like man must act that we can actually rely upon. So humanity, we want to like quantify everything. So Keynesian mm-hmm. economics was a became the dominant uh, capitalist system that we have pretty much all over the world, you know, barring different, even, I mean, even the most communist of countries, 
realistically, the way their economies and, and private businesses that they claim are private, which are not really private, like China and Russia, mm-hmm. are based on uh, capitalism and things like that. Actually, I'm very excited. I'm going to be going to Scotland where the where Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. So I remember That's reading cool. that. And it's one of my, yeah, uh, so you have the modern day democracies. But it's it's kind of really interesting what what you're what you're trying to get at here is that economics or really how we all live our lives shouldn't just be math it should be uh socioeconomics too it should be mm-hmm. how we all interact and act with each other yes. and i think that's what i struggled with modern day economics like i struggled with with that for so long and then when bitcoin uh was created it kind of took all of the quantifiable levers that small groups of people can manipulate for their own benefit because you know those who are closest to the money printer gain from it the most Mm -hmm. satoshi removed all of the levers and said it's all automatic now and then so we can focus more on the austrian principles of modern day societies and and where people are generally happier yeah that's right it takes a lot of work to get to the level of understanding about the significance of Bitcoin, but you can kind of sum it up in these little little tropes. And one of them, I tweeted this out the other day, but if the rules can be changed, then human beings will fight over the power to change the rules. If the rules cannot be changed, then people will play by the rules. And it, it really is that simple. I think that is the hist- both the history of money and the importance of Bitcoin in a nutshell. Because what do we have across all human histories? Like people warring against one another to control resources. And whoever wins, like in the most recent um, contest, we see the United States emerge victorious from World War II. What's the first thing we do? We hold Bretton Woods to write the rules in our own favor, True. to give ourselves the exorbitant privilege to peg the dollar to gold, every other currency to our currency, and then we can export inflation ad infinitum. But if you imagine reimagine that world on a Bitcoin standard, it's like there wouldn't have been a Bretton Woods to, you, you know, the rules would have been fixed outside of the control of humans. So there'd be no rules to write for the, the military victor. So I really consider Bitcoin, you know, you can't separate this domain of of morality and what humans ought to do from the economic domain, because that's what we are doing mostly. We're mostly doing economics all the time, right? That's how we get wealthy. That's how we solve problems. That's how we improve our standard of living. So the the question that you can't avoid in that pursuit is what do you do with the free time and the higher standard of living that you afford yourself and others? How do you spend that time? There's a distinct moral dimension to it. And I think Bitcoin is just so damn important because it gets us away from spending that time trying to take from one another yes. or trying to twist the rules to, against one another. It's like the rules are just fixed. You have no choice. If there, there's two wealth acquisition strategies in life. There's making and there's taking. And when taking is removed as an option, it's like, well, I guess I'm, if I want to be wealthy, I'm going to go over here and be an entrepreneur and participate in making. And Bitcoin is just like this final seems like it could be the final push towards peaceful, productive, fruitful cooperation and away from war. And it's violence. interesting that you say that because if you look at like um, Glassdoor, working at a crypto company is like infinitely better, you know, especially if it's like a Bitcoin company where there's like a core ethos where everyone is following the same 
kind of mission as what we're talking mm -hmm. about. But but even so, in anything with like digital assets or cryptocurrency or NFTs or whatever lingo you want to use, you'll notice that working is infinitely better because uh, it removes all the the I hate to use the term nationalism, but like individual ethnocentrism that we have, mm -hmm. where we all think we're better than other people. Whereas when now, it, when you remove all that stuff, and I and I grew up in a very ethnocentric community that really believed they were better, and I, I hated that. Like I really, mm. to the core, I I could not believe that I, I'm supposed to be better than another person, or mm. from whatever you want to call it. It just didn't make any sense to me. Uh, it removes all that. It's so cool. Listen, you made this your life work. You're a YouTuber. You're a, you're a host of the one of the most popular podcasts called What Is Money. Um, and you really like this is your thread. Why do you believe that financial literacy is like the best tool for individual people to protect themselves? It seem it doesn't seem like it would be such a problem if financial literacy were not so suppressed. And I'm not Why sure. Why is it suppressed? It doesn't make sense to me. You know, I don't know why I, I read this quote from Kiyosaki yesterday and he said, it's no coincidence that they don't teach us anything about money in school in the same way that it was considered dangerous to educate a slave in the antebellum South. They didn't want slaves to learn because that would give them, you know, a better capacity to be an independent thinker and escape and all these things. So I, you know, it may sound like a bit hyperbolic to equate central banking to slavery. I wrote a piece titled Masters and Slaves of Money sort of to this effect. But if you really take an honest look at human history, it's something we've struggled with forever. Like, well, there's always been one group of humans imposing their willpower on another group, right? So there's always been slavery or marginalization of some kind occurring throughout all of human history. I think it's a bit naive and maybe even arrogant to think we've completely rid ourselves of that. I mean, I, you see it. it. That's what central banking is, right? There's one group that can basically worse. steal the time from others. It's gotten worse. I mean, that whole idea of being able to like your families and your family and family rights and property rights and self-sovereignty in this country it's not the same as it was growing up. It's not the same as it was. It's it's definitely eroding. And I don't know mm -hmm. if it's a lack of trust in institutions or just a lack of trust in other people that we talk to and things like that. Well, again, you know, back to the rules. When you inflate the currency supply, you are violating the private property rights of dollar users, dollar holders. So what, you know, even if this isn't cognitively understood, I think it in it induces insanity in people because like, if you can't make sense of the world, like, you know, my inputs were costing X now they're X times 1.5, yeah. but my revenue is flat. Like I haven't done anything different. What's going on. It creates all this inflation, is just injecting uncertainty into the rules, into the socioeconomic fabric. And so this, like, there's no better way to drive people insane than to just keep changing the rules. Because like you can't make sense, you can't establish integrity in the relationship between your agency and the arena you're operating in. So how can you? You can't be sane. You just lose your mind. So I think this, and I, I do. I've written on this recently. I wrote two pieces on mass psychosis, and this was before the doctor went on Joe Rogan and said he thought we're in a mass formation psychosis. What can you get into that? 
Yeah, it. You know, we've had mass psychosis like the Salem witch trials at a small scale. A uh, great example. The larger scale mass psychosis, the largest scale mass psychosis, is totalitarianism, where there is a North group Korea. Of, yeah, North Korea. You know, Soviet Russia, Maoist China, Nazi Germany. Like we've had a lot of um, a lot of issues where the people in power, which you could say are the rulers. And we can quantify who are the rulers by who is receiving, who is a net tax receiver versus a net taxpayer. So the taxpayer is the one being extracted from, the tax receiver is the one doing the extracting. That is the two sides of the coin. That's rulers and ruled. Um, when that gets really bad, so you know, we know that inflation is taxation. We know direct taxation is taxation. Um, also, regulation itself is a form of taxation because you're basically impeding the entrepreneur's ability to go out and solve a problem. Instead of just being able to go out and solve a problem and start a business, ah, they need a license. Yeah. They need this. They got to do this form. They have to jump through this hoop. So it's adding all this undue cost to entrepreneurship. Yeah, the, the ferry conundrum someone mentioned to me, it's like if you have two towns on a river, someone wants to launch a ferry system. What's you know, what are the red tape that that person has to go to in various countries around the world? And if you look, most places you can't even the ferry, if there was going to be a ferry, it would have been owned by the president's brother. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, Sorry, that's funny. So uh, in my theory, and it's sort of the historical evidence bears it out, is that the more rapidly you violate property rights, like property rights are how we relate to the world. Yes. Right. When you think of, you think through money, typically, but you're also quantifying your assets in money. When you start to use, when you start to ramp up any of these violations of property, whether it's inflation, direct taxation, or regulation, it clouds people's perception or relationship to the world, and that's how you go crazy. Like, what does the definition of going crazy? It's like you're out of touch with reality. Well, violating property rights puts you out of touch with socioeconomic reality. And so leading up to the Salem witch trials, for instance, they were debasing the currency for decades. Leading up to every event of totalitarianism, there's rapid currency debasement, you know, flagrant property right violation. So I think we know this. We know this from 1215 Magna Carta, life, liberty, property. This is the foundation of Western civilization. When you start to fuck with that, yeah, it ruins everything, everything yeah. at the individual and collective level. It's very scary. It's it, we've yeah. It's very scary actually because now that you talk about it, I feel like we are going through this mass hysteria right now because the most the smartest people that I knew for decades, and when I mean smart, I mean grounded and just an understanding of the large world, you know, and how kind of humanity goes through it. People that are much older to, than me, um, I just I see them now just so convinced over one thing mm -hmm. that makes absolutely no sense, but gives them confirmation bias mm -hmm. on what they already want to believe that people are, that those, these people are just so closed minded that, and I'm, I'm 32. So maybe you could call me young, but I've never experienced this in my life. I've never experienced not being able to talk to anyone about everything. I know in other countries bringing up certain politics with other people, but I mean, I mean, the worst thing you could say is if you're a Yankees fan and then someone likes the Mets, you'd be punching it out. But other than that, nothing was ever off limits. It is now. 
I mean, yeah. pre, even COVID, Donald Trump, everything. It's all been off limits. I, th I think it started even five or six years ago, seven, eight years ago, even. Well, I 2009. You, I've never experienced anything like this in my life either. I'm in your same age range. Um, but again, looking at history, it's happened a lot, a lot, a lot. We always create this us versus them narrative. And then it comes to a head. And typically one of those groups is dehumanized to the point of justifying their purge, right? This is, you know, Hitler did this very, very infamously. Uh, he dehumanized Jewish people for a long time exactly, before it yeah. came to the climax of um, one of the, his first uh, one of the first rules he did before anything was strip them was strip Jewish people of economic rights. Yes, and that was one of property. the first things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I would point people. Um, Jeffrey A. Tucker has been writing. He's of the Brownstone Institute. He's an I love Jeff journalist. Tucker. Yeah, he's been writing some great OG. pieces on us. He's, he's a, a Bitcoin OG. He's been around since I remember uh, Eric Voorhees and I went to the Free State Conference in New Hampshire in 2013 and sat him down with an agroni and said, this is Bitcoin. You need to understand this. This is the future. And he, there was another big libertarian guy right across the hall. And he's like, hey, you need to come over here. Who was it? It, was, um, it wasn't Ron Paul. It was like. Someone just at like a crazy caliber, but that when, when people, when, when people really clicked, it's, it was so beautiful in the early days watching Bitcoin click for people when they had never heard about it before. You don't really get that anymore because everyone really gets it unless you're someone who really wants to understand it. And I love getting deep my whiteboard in my office. I have algorithms, no, sorry, I have different formulas from the white paper out. And I'm explaining to people how, you know, an old block would have to, an old, a new blockchain would have to maintain and catch up with the current chain and to overtake crazy stuff. it's a lot of fun it's beautiful it's like a new religion yeah it is and it's it's an interesting phenomenon to see happening because we've never we've never had a global consensus like this you know it's no matter what even if i'm all whatever pro-vax anti-vax pro-trump pro-biden whatever your divide if you're a bitcoiner Yes. You have this weird commonality and it cuts across all dimensions of your identity. Um, and it is, yeah, it's it, another thing I've learned kind of going down this rabbit hole is that all of our social institutions, all of these useful fictions we construct, they have a religious quality to them. So it's kind of, we're, there's another element of ignorance here where we think religion, the common modern viewpoint is that religion is some, you know, antiquated thing that we used to use and now we have these modern institutions but your modern institutions are religious too like it's we're human yeah. beings we grow up playing imaginary as kids and then we become adults and we play serious imaginary but now our imagined orders are like nation states and human rights and money so these you know the religious impulse of mankind is like it's essential to who we are it's what makes us the dominant species in the world and Bitcoin is something really interesting because I don't know. It's like a, a religion born from economic and computer science. You know, there's so much veracity in this social construct we call Bitcoin, which is it's kind of like money, but it's also kind of like an automated central bank. And it's kind of like a national identity. It's got all these this weird mix of, of flavors. Do you, do you think that? The way 
we've looked at the Bible over generations as a guide to life from the minute you're born to the minute you die. It, it you know, it's a complete, a beautiful guide to life. Do you think that the Bitcoin white paper or, or the Bitcoin canon eventually can kind of be seen? Maybe, maybe modern, I'm trying to form that my words, like maybe modern society or modern humanity or our brains needed a newer, you know, religions are founded every couple of generations. So maybe this is like the newest religion. Maybe we redefine the term religion to like moral identity, not moral identity. Like what do you, you see where I'm kind of getting with this question? Yeah. So one thing that I learned again from Peterson is that, you know, again, we look at the Bible as some static object from a bygone era, but he makes the argument that we're living the biblical corpus right now. Like again, Western oh, yeah. civilization, life, liberty, and property, that's all derived from kind of the core teachings in the Bible, right? And the, in the Bible itself, it's not so much a prescriptive moral document. I mean, there are prescriptions in there, but it's, 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 chronal, it's a chronicle of mankind's moral development over time. Like if you, st if you start in the Old Testament, we're brutish and, you know, there's all kinds of weird shit going on. And then you get into the New Testament, it's much more understandable right it's you know love thy neighbor and love god and all this and the other thing he he makes the point is that there's a book called paradise lost by i think it's by friedman um and this was a book written way after the books of the bible like a lot of the books of the bible are ancient stories but he makes the point that that book did such a good job articulating these dimensions of evil and whatnot that it's almost become part of the biblical corpus so it seems like maybe over time we do write these new books or create these new social institutions that oh, get absorbed into the Bible. So like, yeah, if you fast forward from here, I don't know, 500 or a thousand years in the future, maybe Satoshi's white paper is somehow part of that, that, uh, you know, the books of the Bible. Sorry to interrupt your regularly scheduled programming, but I wanted to tell you guys that if you're using PancakeSwap, Uniswap, DYDX, SushiSwap, you're doing it wrong. You need to be using PowerSwap because PowerSwap is a user interface, a decentralized smart contract platform that sits on top of all of these. And when you go to PowerSwap or untoldstories.link forward slash PowerSwap, because they're refunding your gas, if you go there, then you'll be able to, on top of Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain and Polygon look for the best prices for your tokens and swap and do everything in one predefined transaction on chain. Instead of having to do the approval to this token, to that token, to do all these different things, Paraswap does it all for you. It's decentralized. They just released their API version five that you can see everything. It's all open source. Very cool stuff. Untoldstories.link forward slash Paraswap. If you're using any of the other decentralized protocols, you're doing it wrong because you need to be using the routing, beautiful Paraswap routing system, and it's fully decentralized too. It's gorgeous. I'll talk to you guys soon. The current Bible as we know it, whether it be the Old Testament or you want, uh, or the, the New Testament, or there's other forks and things that have been canonized over the years, different religions. You can, you can put the Quran in there too. You can, you know, all types of things. Maybe like humanity needs to recanonize every hundred years, the most important kind of moral guidance books that weave together because the Bible, 
the 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 Old Testament was canonized as the Old Testament, and I what I was learning was there was actually fights over that during that time because it was a small group of rabbinical authority who only said these five books are going to be included. But at the time, they were thousands. I mean, I, I I've studied them, uh, and then the New Testament came, and there was more, and so it it's just humanity and time. We like try to freeze things in time, and it's selfish right. uh, to do. Uh, so that's actually a very interesting kind of thought to go down. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We have to isolate things and put them into, you know, words and stories so we can share them and communicate them and pass them from generation to generation. But something is always lost in translation, right? You can never capture the essence. We can never decomplexify reality into a word. You know, there's something, the map is not the territory, as they say. So maybe we constantly have to redraw that map as reality changes over time. Religion, when when it's first kind of created uh, and over its first generations, if you look at uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they're created during times of chaos and anarchy. Mm-hmm. If you look at even Christianity during the Roman times and then uh, uh, the, the, the Bronze Era and the medieval times, Christianity was the reason that modern-day Europe the family, you know, the family system, the the church was very involved in inventing the modern day court system in England, which we use, you know, we use common law now globally. And then religion starts to get uh, corrupted and then things happen, whatever, whatever. But so the point is, right, maybe Bitcoin, not maybe, I think it is. Bitcoin is that next glue that keeps humanity going into that next era. Yeah, no, you're analogy to common law is very apt because English common law is decentralized law. Yeah. Right. This is, we observe what humans have been dealing with forever and we abstract the patterns of how we resolve conflict and dispute. And we codify that into common law. And then the law itself changes. It it becomes very stable and changes very slowly. Right. Sounds like Bitcoin, right. Comes very stable, changes very slowly versus what we have largely in the U.S. today, increasingly, is centralized legislated law, right? Where one group can come out by fiat and say, this is the law. We're signing this thing in the law. Not without, you know, with total disregard to whatever uh, customary law may have been discovered up until that point. So we've moved from decentralized discovery, legal discovery process, to a centralized legislated law process where it's just one group imposing its will on the others and that's what's in that's what creates instability in my estimation yeah. people like to be free people don't want to be fucking told what to do so the more you honor that individual sovereignty and the less you have one group trying to imprint its willpower on others the more stable uh human yeah. civilization is and then we talk about um private property and self-sovereignty those two things when they and I'll go back to the to England as an example, the founding of England, because I'm reading a lot of books about it right now. Um, before private property, private enterprise was uh, was you know legal, and even you know even during monarchy times, there were there were systems to enforce your own you know private property. You couldn't leave your own town without carrying your money on your hip, and so right. private property became such an integral thing. Why? why i guess that eroded over 
time. And then now Bitcoin, you know, the basic simple, the basic thing of like, not your keys, not your coins. Mm. Um, I almost wish I go back generations and say that like to people, you know, all this money and property, it's, it's all eroding. Look at 1971, everyone holding gold. And then all of a sudden the government confiscates it's all, all of it. So it's like, that was not that long ago. Yeah. And again, maybe a good way to think about this is, you know, there's scarce resources in the world. There's less stuff than there is demand for stuff. So we have to resolve that dispute somehow, and we have to resolve it in an ongoing fashion. There's only two ways to do it. You can do it by contract. We can agree to some protocol and like sort it out, you know, have rule of law or recourse to arbitration um, or money even, right? Money's kind of like this this social contract. Or we can have conflict. We can fight over the stuff. And cooperation and resolution via contract is much more energy efficient and much more uh, affords us easier wealth creation in the world. So it's like, that's the crux here is we've created Western civilization based on contract, like strong contract law, right? And, and respect for individual property rights and all of this. But it's we're now moving away from that. And so- Yeah, it's been a really- Very importantly to understand when you hear like, we printed $10 trillion. Typical person thinks, oh, that's great. We didn't have enough money. We printed more money. Wonderful. The government's going to send me a check. There's a bailout. Government's got my back. What's actually happening, though, is they're violating the property rights of the most economically vulnerable in the world. Anyone that depends on the dollar, right? People that are retired, living paycheck to paycheck, economically vulnerable, et cetera, they're being stolen from to then fund those who own assets effectively the, i it's mean not, if you don't see that that's going to destabilize civilization i don't have any hope for you because there's, it's going to destabilize a lot of things and it's also going to very quickly erode uh our faith i mean the fact that the governments will use debasement of currency you lose immediate faith uh when when england started conquering france or the, the lands around that, one of the reasons that all of, you know, people living in, in the lands of France at the time didn't, like, didn't uh, fear against the English was because the English brought with them uh, money that wasn't debased because French mm. money was constantly debased. No one knew. Right. And brought that common law of property rights. And people like that. People like yeah. being able to go back and forth between. And so, again, I'm, I'm like very generalizing everything, but, but, um, at the end of the day, I think we could both agree that, uh, artif- like you said, I'm going to take one of your quotes, artificial price inflation is destabilizing and natural price deflation is civilizing. Yes. And um, all the biblical books and everything that we've learned over time and really just follows that same weave. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just, it's somewhat obvious if you really, that's why I love I love that because it is obvious. It's it well, is obvious when you open up your ears. Yeah, and just to try, like we again, the word property is so important. But what do people typically think when you say the word property? They think real estate, yeah. usually, right? Oh, real estate. No, we're talking about the relationship between owner and asset. How do we preserve the integrity of that relationship? Right. You can again, you can uh, you cement it via conflict. Right. It's like who owns this land. Whoever won the war owns the land. 
Now, who owns the land post-war? Well, it's whoever contracts for it. And how do we honor those contracts within yeah. the legal system? So this idea of property being the unshakable foundation of civilization is really important. Like if you can't, if you don't have recourse to the product of your past freedom, if I've gone out and built a successful business, but I don't, I can't secure it, right? Someone can just take it arbitrarily. Then all of a sudden the smart people, the inventors, the entrepreneurs, the innovators, they're not being rewarded in society. So everyone suffers. All of civilization suffers. Imagine if Steve Jobs didn't have strong property rights. You're right. He like, wouldn't, the fuck he wouldn't we innovate. have nothing. We'd be still in the 1980s or whatever situation we'd be in. So strong property rights are everything. Everything. You have strong property rights, you create wealth, you create freedom, all the above. And fiat currency inflation, again, I've probably said it five times, but that's all it is. It's only a violation of property rights. It's nothing else. If the relationship between asset owner and asset was solidified and globally recognized on something like the Bitcoin blockchain, where if one country decided to have a military takeover, a coup, a conquering, any, any non-political recourse or any type of recourse, you would, what would be the point of wars? I mean, what would be the point of trying to, to invade another country if you could not take their resources? Because exactly. the ledger, the distributed ledger is agreed by the rest of the world as this is what we're using now. This is the new human. Bitcoin is our generation. Is, I'm sorry, Bitcoin is humanity's social contract. And now we yeah. can have one with each other. It's, it's beautiful. Global social contract. Yes. Global social contract, and to your point, removing the carrot from warfare, right? The carrot from war has always been, it's an economic calculation. Can I go cost-effectively defeat these people in combat and then extract tribute from them? If there's a positive, if, there's, if it's profitable for me to do so, I will do so. I did this podcast recently with Jason Lowry. He's a great guy. You should have him on your show. MIT student. He's, I would love to. He's got a very interesting thesis on Bitcoin. But he, he jokingly calls all these great conquerors the original economist. You know, Genghis Khan is like looking at your territory saying, hmm, what, what do you have? And then he's running the, the calculus. Can I beat you in warfare? Well, if it's profitable for me to do so, then I'm going to come kick your ass and take your stuff. But with Bitcoin, it's something fundamentally different it's like you can come and kick whoever's ass you want but if they've custodied their bitcoin intelligently you're not getting shit right it's you're, you can't yeah. touch it so this yeah. idea of an untouchable wealth medium is very disincentivizing to warfare which is just incredible to think about can i bring about world peace it's it's such a beautiful thing and and uh thank you for taking the time to me and time today and going over all these yeah, subjects man. um my listeners definitely are going to want to hear more from you. So I'm going to have them check it out. And we'll have in the notes the, your podcast called What is Money on YouTube and wherever you get your audio. Robert Breedlove. Wow. I mean, we didn't, I was going to, with part two, we got to get into the singularity about how potentially Bitcoin is the future robotics way of taking over humanity by taking all of our own powers away from us slowly. It's crazy stuff. But I'm not going to scare the listener. <laughs> I'll see you yeah, later. Sure. Thank you. Thanks, Charlie. Bye.